0: Listeners, I am David Blakesley, and this is episode 121 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. And it's been a few weeks since I've done one of these. Had a little bit of a travel break in between over the Memorial Day holiday weekend here in the U.S. And it's been even longer, really, since I've talked about one of these type of movies. By what I mean by that is kind of what you would consider a more of a canonical Criterion classic. Uh, last several weeks. It seems, or last several episodes, uh, going back a ways, it's been a lot of genre films and kind of oddball one-off stuff that's been featured on the Criterion channel, but we are here tonight to talk about a bona fide classic of the new German cinema by one of Criterion's uh, most celebrated and favored directors, Rainer Werner Fassbinder. We're here to talk about The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, a 1972 film that uh, really was kind of a, a landmark in his career. Really expanded the reach of his uh, vision, created an audience, and uh, you know, obviously brought a lot of his back catalog into prominence as well. But this is a pretty important film in uh, in his uh, you know all too brief career and one that I think we'll have some fascinating conversation about as we get into it. So let's go ahead and get our guests introduced. We've got a really nice panel for this episode, some familiar voices for longtime listeners as well as a new uh, contributor. I'll be introducing him in a minute, but let's start with some of the more familiar faces. Uh, Derek Power, how are you doing, Derek?
1: I'm doing well, thank you.
0: It's nice to have you on. Do you remember right offhand with the last time you were on the show? What
1: uh, about? Was it Solaris or... Something else after that.
0: It could have been something more recent. Solaris seems like it's been a while, but definitely it's good to have you back. And I don't have that right off oh, the uh, It either.
1: was, um, it was, uh, Tava Bien.
0: Oh, of course. Yeah. The Godard, um, yeah. kind of the the extravaganza that I did with the Godard and his political films. You kind of helped me finish up that series that I did with uh, John Lobinger with the more political stuff and then Tava Bien uh, to That's kind right, of wrap yeah. that up. That was what back in the, Fall summer of last year. So. Yeah, it
1: was it was like October. Yeah, last October.
0: Well, oh, that's all right, good. And another person who has—I don't think you've been on in a while, Josh. But it's really yeah, great it's, to have you back again, Josh Hornbeck.
2: Yeah, it's really nice to be here. Thanks so much for uh, for having me. I'm excited to talk some Fassbender. It's been a while uh, since uh, Fassbender's come up in your rotation, and <laughs> I know I've been on uh, yeah. quite a bit of the Fassbender films, and so eager to uh, dig into this film with you all.
0: Yeah, I think there's no dispute that we've probably talked more Fassbinder on this podcast than any other director, just because he was so prolific during the period in which uh, I've been doing this podcast. We started in the year of 1969, of course, that was when Love is Colder Than Death, and "Katzelmacher" came out, and there's the Gods of the Plague, The American Soldier, Uh, Beware of a Holy Whore, and then the most recent one we talked about was actually July of 2020. I did look that one up. That was The Merchant of Four Seasons, which was also a pretty big kind of opening and introduction of Fassbender to... uh, kind of more international audience, but I think this one really launched him over the top. So, yeah, so uh, 1971, The Merchant of Four Seasons, and here I am two years later getting to his next film, which was made a year later, which means that Fossbinder was making films faster than I was I'm making podcasts. <laughs> so, but, you know, he's a little bit more focused, a little bit more relentless than I am. I kind of amble my way through. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce our third guest. This is a first-time uh, contributor to the show, Brian Howell. Brian, welcome. To Criterion Reflections. Really nice to have you today.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's great to be on. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah.
0: Well, I definitely want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, you and I have been Facebook friends for a while. You've kind of struck up conversations with me. So tell us what you do and where you're at and all that stuff.
3: Yeah, well, I teach in Japan, uh I teach language basically. Uh um, but uh, as, we, as we say nowadays, we, are, we do do a bit of content. It's a kind of a fashionable thing these days. So I try to get in a bit of um, film or art in some of my lessons, depending on the structure. Um, so very quickly, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm from London and uh, I dabbled in film criticism in the 80s after university. I tried my bit at screenplays, not very well, and then I decided that's it for me. I'm gonna write fiction. Mm-hmm. So, along with teaching, I've been publishing short stories and a few novels ever since the 1990s. Um, and um, I've got a few thing. I've got one thing coming out, which is the you know, uh, which is nice uh, very soon. Maybe I mention it later. Um, yeah. I, I get. I guess as far as film goes. I'm not particularly academic. Um, I am more of a fan. Um, and I also am a big podcast fan. And this is the first contribution to any, I think it's the first, almost the first podcast I've ever been on, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Brian. I appreciate your friendship and your interest in the show. And uh also appreciate the ability of, of all of us to work out a good time. So we've got a uh, Japanese time zone, Josh out there on the West Coast up in Seattle, uh, in pacific and me and uh derek over here in the eastern so we're truly a globe trotting uh world-spanning podcast tonight. And I also have plans for a fourth guest, um, William Remmers from New York City, a great uh, guest and always got fascinating contributions and observations to make. Uh, he was going to be part of our panel tonight, but uh, he ended up getting a gig. So he's going to be uh, playing uh, Rocky Horror music on a piano, and and so he had to bow out, but I do want to get his thoughts. and So I'm going to hopefully be able to schedule a time where Will and I can kind of put a little epilogue. So if that all works out, I will tack that on to the end of the conversation that we're about to get into and give you a little extra bonus coverage at the end there. So uh, let's get into it. Uh, Josh, you know, you, you talked a little bit about your your experience with Fassbender. So I'll kind of go ahead and let you kind of set it up here as far as just your, your history with this particular film and this phase of Fassbender's career. Kind of what's your opening thought here?
2: Yeah, you know, I um, first got into Fassbender through uh, Roger Ebert's great films list, and uh, watching through uh, Ali ferries the soul, and through the B R D trilogy because of his recommendations, and uh, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant was the first film that uh, Fassbender's that I saw that wasn't on. Uh, A recommended list uh, to see. It came up uh, because I was trying to find as many uh, films by directors that I'd been introduced to in other ways. And it was uh, on Netflix at the time and I just added it to my queue and uh, the title intrigued me and uh, watched it, I think maybe, I don't know, a little, maybe 15 years ago. And mm. uh, it, uh, and just was really mesmerized by it, mm. and mm-hmm. uh, really captivated by the film, by uh, Fassbender's use of space, uh, by the power dynamics between the characters, and uh, it it just was absolutely uh, captivating to me and it was still really early in my experience with Fosbender what Fossbender was doing mm. uh, still you know I still feel like I have a lot to learn about Fossbender and, and how he uh, how he explores relationships and uh, how style is often wrapped up in how he explores relationships mm-hmm. um, but it was it was one that just really I think hooked me completely it was the first one that I think I fully um, fully got uh, hmm. and fully, fully embraced. So I have a, It's a special film for me. I think it has a special place in my heart. And then uh, rewatched it once Criterion uh, released the disc. And uh, this most recent viewing, I think, is my third or fourth time viewing it. Um, and I just, I love this film. I think this is a a really. Uh, it's a lacerating film. It's, mm. uh, emotionally bruising at times, uh, it's dark and, uh, yet it's also really beautiful and moving and, uh, it's like a, it's a, an emotional gut punch and, uh, uh, it just, it confirms to me, uh, why I, I keep coming back to Fassbender, I think with, just the the volume of work that he was putting out um he's a filmmaker that i just I, I keep coming back to time and time again and he he rarely misses for me
0: excellent very good introduction so derek why don't you pick it up from there what's your history with Fassbender? have you done any Fassbender shows on on this on this uh, series here
1: no i no i haven't okay. because my, yeah cuz my experience with Fassbender has been very scattershot and it's okay. been largely fueled by the Criterion Collection. It began sure. with the BRD trilogy, and I actually took the plunge and went through Berlin Alexander plots.
0: Yeah, okay. So
1: so that's <laughs> that's really hardcore mm-hmm. there. Yep. And actually, I think the only title of his that I've seen out released outside of the Criterion Collection is um, In the Year of 13 Moons.
0: Okay, so, is that one of that his was, later films? I'm not even familiar with that title.
1: Uh, that saying, was, yeah. yeah, I think that was seventy seven i think or 78 okay
0: yeah kind of in those brd years but uh yeah i
1: think yeah it was it was before it was before marriage the marriage of maria Braun, i I believe but at any rate um and actually that was through a um college hallmate who was into fassbender and some other like subversive the subversive side of european cinema like that's how i got into pasolini was was mm-hmm. through him, but he also likes uh, Luciano Visconti too. So there's your there's a little bit of dichotomy. Well, here.
0: Visconti could definitely go to some dark places. True, amidst true. all the opulence and you know, wealth. I guess Visconti, that's kind of what I was yeah. thinking of. You, know, you think <laughs> yeah, you think
1: Visconti, yeah. you know, opulence, and then Pasolini sort of sort of out of the landed. grime, but,
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So when um, when Criterion issued uh, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, I knew that that was on the early side. A fast yeah. burner, which was and I knew that that was an important film uh, for him as far as starting that kind of international reputation that he that he would that would later grow uh, in subsequent releases. So so in in that sense, like when I when I saw it, um, the amateur film historian side of me picked up right away that this was him realizing that you can be you can still be confrontational, but not be so obvious about it. You know, Mm -hmm. this was, I think he was um, going away from sort of the radical theater approach in in his early days and was utilizing more of Hollywood melodrama, particularly from Douglas Sirk. And I think that's the Mm -hmm. other thing too, is that he kind of learned that he can do the same sort of thing that he did but also do it his way as well. So yeah, I, I think yeah. so. I, I kind of see this as a important stepping stone for his growth uh, as an as an artist. Um, personally, I sort of joke that I watch this if I'm in a misanthropic mood.
0: Sure, uh, because <laughs> I it, it is
1: <laughs> it it is so um, you know relentlessly uh, brute and even like brutally honest of of the. Mm. Uh, shortcomings of each of us as individuals and also how we relate to each other. And Mm -hmm. so therefore it's kind of a reminder of what not to do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But again, I I, I appreciate that kind of, I can respect that kind of honesty in there as well. And, and I, I think it, and I think also it was, it's kind of brilliant. The, the way that he set it up, that it was all filmed in one location and that he employed a lot of brechtian techniques and other things to kind of you know give it to but uh, but also at the same time not losing that emotional core Mm. so excellent it's like striking a balance
0: yeah yeah there's there's a lot of craft a lot of subtlety here uh i do agree that you know his early films were very brash very in your face you know kind of a godardian and just kind of you know really just almost you know grabbing the viewer by the collar either with its minimalism or with just kind of how kind of (laughs) egregious his his character's behavior was even yeah there's there's a lot of strength there's a lot of tension there's a lot of drama here but it is delivered with a sense of of subtlety um that that i think is is pretty commendable and, and also very effective brian go ahead and give us your opening take i know you mentioned in some of our uh Chatter that this, you know, this was a, a challenging film, especially for making your podcasting debut. So I'll kind of yeah. feed you that. But but take it from there.
3: Well, in a way it couldn't have been you know, harder, but it's not like I'm not familiar with him because mm-hmm. I really I mean I've been familiar with him for decades and I I probably have been influenced... well, I've liked more his glossier stuff, his later stuff, which I saw first. Um and actually it took me quite a while to get through berlin alexanderplatz but actually that's probably my favorite because it just really blew me away the second time the first time it was a bit of a i saw it in the 80s on tv so it was a bit of a blur um but i was just astounded by the achievement of it um i guess i've um i yeah a bit scattershot is a good way to say it because i'm a bit similar I, I, I've seen the odd film, like the one uh, Derek mentioned, like Year of Thirteen Moons, and um, but v- recently I've I got hold of the original Arrow box, the DVD, and I and I thought I lazily start to watch the earlier ones, and I was so shocked by the early stuff, like Katsumaka and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, I can't remember the other title, but um, so I've been watching a few of those, and. The weird thing for me is that when you get to Petra, it's it's a real shock. Um, I mean, I don't, I can't. Apart from if forgetting what the characters are up to, I mean, in terms of filmmaking technique, uh, it's just incredible. And uh, the more I watched, rewatched it, I kept thinking of people like um, Peter Greenaway, or um, well, particularly Peter Greenaway, in terms of the mise en scène and um as far as as far as his characters go i really am on the or, or the appeal of the stories let's say i'm 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 kind of on the fe- fence i i don't have a strong position but the only thing i can think of right now is that he's famous for this um you know distancing effect or an alienation effect and I, when i think about it um it's hard to put for me, it's hard to describe what just one style. But I think if you were to say what his style, what I mean, his all his whole oeuvre is like a big alienation effect in one sense. Um, but as I say, Petra is. Um, I think it's different, and it's going to be interesting to see what we say about that.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the uh, the basic core of this story. Uh, Petra van Kant is a woman who we soon learn into the film that she's been through a couple of marriages. Her first one, uh, was a very happy marriage, very fulfilling, but it ended tragically when her husband died. Uh, her second marriage, which lasted longer, had a period of intense love and dedication and openness and, and satisfaction for, for both of them. But, uh, she began. Well, she had been a model, apparently, uh, and kind of a you know a known face and and figure. Uh, but then she became a fashion designer and began at some point to out earn her husband. And so some of the uh, the sharing and the uh, the openness and the unique attributes. They did not want to have a conventional marriage. Uh, we, we get a pretty good chunk of Petra's sort of philosophy of life in that first half hour or so of the film, uh, where she's really talking about first, beautiful things don't last. Uh, and second, you know, things that might be conventional or, Satisfying to some people, just kind of fill her with disgust. Women who sort of play their feminine games to, you know, give the man the sense that he's in charge of the relationship, uh, he's bringing home the bacon, and all of that. But uh, she knows how to get her way. This this is Petra's sister Sidoni, who kind of embodies this more conventional way of life. They're both women of some privilege. Um, and and it's that first half hour or so where we really get to explore the character of Petra von Kant, uh, the titular figure, and, and really the you know the, the core personality that drives this film is where kind of understanding both her strengths as well as her ultimate fragility and perhaps her own uh, self delusion uh, into the story. And probably what it's most remembered for is the the vivid. Uh, encounter between uh, Petra and a young woman named Karin, uh, played by you know, Fassbinder's muse, Hannah Shigula, uh who was you know a core figure in so many of those early films and really worked with Fassbinder throughout almost the remainder of his career, uh, including some of the greatest roles, The Marriage of Maria Brown being probably her most altogether famous. But Hannah Shagula, um, a very beautiful woman, uh, comes in, uh, she's just landed after, um, spending several years in Australia with her husband, who she s- seems to have abandoned. Uh, she wants to get into the modeling industry. Petra sees her as a very attractive, uh, figure who could, uh, perhaps help promote her fashions. And more crucially, she is just smitten by this lovely young woman who's st- stumbled into her life. And, uh, Karin being somewhat limited of means recognizing that this is a pretty good foot in the door to pursue her own ambitions, uh, her career and just kind of get connected to all the right people decides that she will go ahead and take up Petra's offer of basically, uh, free room and board, uh, but also being the object of Petra's, uh, you know, very obsessive affections, uh, that routine kind of wears thin on Karen after a while. Uh, she has her own ideas, her own ambitions. Uh, she is dependent somewhat on, on Petra. Petra relishes that dependency. And it's just fascinating to me to see how much of Petra's uh, espoused philosophies and principles that she gives in that first half hour before Karen even enters the scene. Uh, the, the, how it sets her up for both this period of intense uh, infatuation, but then this extreme bitterness when all of those roles that she claimed to despise—you know, the, the controlling, the manipulation, the dishonesty—kind you know, of come back to bite her because <laughs> the 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 values that she seems to want to push away end up seeming to have a pretty strong grip on her personality and on her view of relationships anyways so it's a film that's full of really barbed dialogue you go to the IMDB quotes page there's there's quite a few zinger lines of there that uh, Fossbinder scripted and uh, the the power of the exchanges between Petra and Karen, and then later on after Karen departs the, the, the scene and, and leaves Petra and we never see her again Petra has uh, some pretty memorable moments with her mother as well as her teenage daughter, who seems to have been almost like a non-character for the majority of the film. Uh, but but that that family dynamic also plays out. And then, of course, there's Marlena, who uh, maybe I'll give somebody else a chance to talk about, Erm Herman uh, and her incredible... Wordless performance uh, that says so much. Just the power of, of facial expressions. How, how about Josh? We'll give you a chance to get into it and just uh, help us uh, get a little bit of analysis of the the story and the relationships going here.
2: Yeah, you know, I think you're you're exactly right. That that first section, I think, with um, Sidoni and uh, Petra, is so key. To understanding everything else that follows. Because uh, not only is Petra explaining her own philosophy on relationships and everything, she also talks about the way that the marriage between her er, with, with her second husband, uh, she talks about the way that that marriage then turned violent and the way that turned into an abusive marriage and the way that she began to resent and, uh, uh, began to, to become embittered, uh, because of that. And it isn't long after she leaves her, her husband, Frank, uh, the second husband that she takes up with Marlene, who is, silent through the film uh, you know and is her assistant uh who's wordless uh but we know that Marlene has this this deep love for Petra that uh that there is a a deep bond that she feels towards her and yet um Petra treats her with contempt she treats her with derision constantly and um that that this this experience um, has, uh, with, with her husband, Frank has so, um, shaped her view of relationships and so, sh- so altered the way she wants to experience relationships and the, the power dynamics. Cause I do think ultimately this is a film about power dynamics within relationships. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, and we see that throughout, we see the way that she, um, Wields her power over Karin, uh, that that the way she tries to entice Karin into a power, into a into a relationship through the the ways that she can give Karin advantage and money and privilege and status and give her an advantage in the world, and then the way that Karin turns the tables on her. Mm-hmm. as well. And there are all of these little shifts throughout that I think are really um, key to the to what Fossbinder is is eventually exploring uh, in the film. And I, I think that 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 first section is just the, it's so essential in understanding, where Petra is at this point, you know, her first husband died in a car accident and it seemed to be a, a, a relationship of mutuality. Um, but her relationship with Frank, like you said, David, uh, when, when Petra started earning more money, when she started being the one who was more successful, he started resenting that. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is a film about the ways that bitterness, the ways that contempt, the ways that all of these feelings begin to um, seep into relationships when power imbalances uh, and when when one one partner begins to hold the power over another. Um, and so, yeah, it's brutal, but I think it's also <laughs> really honest about about these these things. Yeah.
0: So, Derek, what what is your take on the the dynamics between Petra, Karen, and let's get Marlena in there as well?
1: Well, um, I think what's interesting throughout the whole film is that, um, <clears throat> in addition to the filmmaking techniques which introduce its own alienation effects, with Petra, they always it always seems to be this this disconnect between what she thinks she does and what she actually does. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's the kind of thing like when you like, in especially in that first section where she, as you said, she espouses her philosophy of life and her views on things. And, and this also continues certainly when during the honeymoon phase of the caring relationship. And then during the sour phase of the caring relationship, it seems like she like in her heart of hearts that she's still this, um, idealistic, romantic, and a, a, a lot of and a lot of her actions and her aspirations are very, very romantic. And yet, her actions and her attitudes and what um, you know what she does to Marlene, and then what gets revealed more when the Karen relationship sours, is um, post romantic and very, very modern and and very kind of vicious and alienating and and cruel and i've even seen the adjective sadistic to describe oh, absolutely yeah
0: she she seems to almost uh thrive on how degrading she can treat marlena you know uh, there's 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 no sense of affection there's kind of this whimsical you know changing of moods and commands uh uh, not only talk, talking down to her, but talking down to her in front of other people when she has visitors. She's really bossing Marlena around, almost like flaunting her power. And yet, I think you're onto something there, Dirk. She is, not at heart, a very romantic, almost desperately needy, clingy type of person who yes. views herself as strong and independent and forthright and uncompromising but it feels like that hardness that bitterness is really a a shield that she puts up to protect herself from the profound disappointments and and heartbreaks that she's experienced
1: and there also seems to be um like uh and speaking of like lack of self-awareness but Mm
0: -hmm.
1: what she thinks she's doing is is love i think i think that always comes up like like i'm expressing love or i'm i'm doing this out of love but it really isn't like it just it just nothing ever matches and i don't know if it's you know if it's just if it's just experience that has made her this bitter or something else inside of her that's that made her this way but it's 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 kind of interesting to see that disconnect
0: yeah brian why don't you pick it up from there what do you what do you see happening in this you know, the, 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 webs and the crossfire of these relationships.
3: Well, I think I'm better talking about minutiae maybe in some ways, because I think that you've summed it up the power relations up so well. Um, so I, I mean, I, what I mean is like some of the kind of themes as they're mirrored by the filmmaking uh, interest me a little bit more. Mm-hmm, so, true. um, I mean I think Derek has referred to framing and and alienation effects and things like that and yeah. um I don't know whether this is part of the alienation effect but what stands out for me is there's a big there's obviously a big thing about mirroring because mirrors are used a lot absolutely yeah. but but not I think it's also structural so there are some things which I noticed um which I think uh, the you know the they're the sign of a fantastic filmmaker um and some some are to do with costume and things like that. So for example, I mean, when she wakes up, uh, first wakes up at the beginning of Petra, she has no makeup on and she looks really ghostly. Um, she looks terrible actually. Yeah. That glaring um,
0: sunlight right in her face. Yeah. Very brutal. Yeah.
3: Mm -hmm. And actually, incidentally, I, I think that's a kind of a semi, min, a mini sadistic act by Marlena because because mm-hmm. <laughs> she complains that you, you should show consideration for me. Yeah, very passive aggressive, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she goes through this wonderful arc of incredible costumes um, of all different, uh, you know, colors and things like that. And by the end of the film, she's, she's, looks, she's back to her ghostly look and she's, mm-hmm. uh, she's got no makeup again. So I quite like that. And like on a smaller scale, roughly in the middle of the film, um, there's an interesting thing where you see uh, Marlena is, is uh, Petra calls Marlena to stop typing, to do something, to get something. And that whole section goes by and exactly the same thing happens at the end of it. So she calls Marlena. And it's just a nice kind of caesura, you know, a nice break point. And I think one more thing about the stru- from the point of view of structure, there's some, there's, I don't know, it's a kind of a trope. You, you know, the camera goes in the mirror, you don't realize it's the mirror, it pulls back. But the way Fassbinder does it in one particular section, I don't know which one it is, but you see, you see, um, uh, that you see Peter and Karin uh in the mirror and I think at once I think in the first one um uh Karin is looking into the mirror and she turns to the right and the camera pans and the action continues for a little while and then you at some stage they're both looking in the mirror at say, at the second stage uh Petra's looking in the mirror and that and then it pans from right to left. And I think that's within fairly short space of time. And I love that kind of formalism, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's one of the things which I wasn't really expecting so much, especially if you've seen the really early, early films. So those kind of... The only thing I would add to that is I think the, the biggest impression I get from the character Petra is that she, at the beginning of the film, she's constantly one-upping, she's constantly scoring points. Mm-hmm. And it seems like her you know her the other protagonist wants to come over to her side and she just rejects any kind of compromise it seems she's right, a person right. of extremes yeah
0: yeah, well, and I appreciate you taking the conversation into this uh dimension of the aesthetics of the film, Brian, because that is as crucial i mean there's there's some great performances, some very barbed and acerbic dialogue going on. But it is that that formalism and the aesthetics, the beauty, the costuming, the the wigs <laughs> of Petra mm-hmm. is over the course of the film. So let's definitely get into that and, and give it all the recognition. Uh, Michael Bauhaus is a cinematographer. This is early in his career. He went on to do some excellent work with Scorsese and. Has been, you know, kind of one of that higher upper echelon of, of cinematographers ever since, and uh, he did not always have a, a good working relationship with Fassbender. And there is a short supplement on the on the Blu Ray talking about how he kind of had to work his way back into Fassbender's good graces after they collaborated on a film called Whitey, which is probably one of the more catastrophic early Fassbender films. Uh, but Bauhaus really shines here in a very confined space. The the entire play or play <laughs> the entire film <laughs> place like a play within an actual apartment and uh you know they had a very cramped quarters to work in but the camera flows and it's just magic so uh, josh let's go back around the circle and just tell us some of the aesthetic highlights the the, the visuals uh, the use of music whatever you want to take it
2: well yeah and you know i th- i do think you know it's it just like brian was saying the use of mirrors is really striking um I know that it wasn't long before shooting this that he discovered the work of Douglas Sirk and it drew him to melodrama and Sirk's use of mirrors uh, was a real influence on him and became something that he, he started to get obsessed with. And so you see him playing with mirrors. Um, It's been a while since I've seen the merchant of the four seasons, but Uh, mirrors become such a a prominent visual motif throughout so many of his films and um, it's it's really striking to see how he is playing with them in this earlier melodrama right Mm -hmm. you know this is still one of those those early early works that's influenced by cirque and you know i i was thinking of that same that same shot that you're referencing brian where you don't realize that it's a mirror and then it pans and it's just, it's breathtaking uh, Mm -hmm. the way he uses that. And there are so many of those, those ways that that he and Ballhaus extend the space through the use of mirrors. And they use the, the lattice work of the, the, um, the wood to, um, to separate space. But, you know, it, this was a play. This was a stage production. And, you know, it is almost unchanged from the original stage production. And the only difference is the little coda at the end, which we can get into later. Mm-hmm. But um, the, there's most of this is word for word. What was in the original stage production. And, you know, I, I find it really, instructive to see how someone can open it up through the use of those, those moving camera techniques through the zooms, through the careful staging. And, you know, something that also really strikes me is the, the placement, the, the almost posing that happens, um, the, as characters, um, stand and assume these positions where they look like, they are in a magazine shoot. They look like they're in a photo spread wearing these gorgeous costumes, uh, assuming their positions for a photo shoot. And then they alter the scene composition again, Mm -hmm. again, showing the shifting power dynamics, showing the ways that their relationship shifts and change showing the, the interplay, especially I was thinking, as I was watching it earlier today, the, the ways that Petra is uh, pursuing Karen in that seduction scene, oh, yeah. and the way that she will walk up to to Karen, and Karen will deftly move away, and then allow herself to be pursued, and then move away again, and then Petra will recline on the bed, this this symbol in the middle of the the room. You know, it it it's all really, really beautifully orchestrated and, um, it's all precise. It's, it's highly theatrical as someone who's worked in theater for many years. You have to, you have to really rehearse. You have to really, um, get your actors to, um, to work with you, to have those things motivated, uh, by, you know, so that you, you believe what's going on, you know, I, and, 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 you know, I believed each of those performers the whole time. And then, mm-hmm. and then you get that beautiful camera pan over to Marlene and yes, <laughs> it zooms yeah. in on her and you see her watching this whole thing so that she becomes our silent witness to everything mm-hmm. that's happening. I mean, this is, this is all just so powerfully done and, um, uh, I mean we could go on and on. I mean the music, yeah. the the yeah. the way the music is is all diegetic. We don't get anything in the in the film that is not played on that record player mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, again comments on the action that we're seeing on on screen. Um, this is just all so precise and I think that that uh in such command of everything here this to me you know i I love merchant of the four seasons i think merchant of the four seasons is a really again it's a step up in in just control and quality from what he was doing beforehand those experimental works but this to me is just even a step beyond what he was doing Even you know, I think you know, Merchant of the Four Seasons was not very you know long, you know they were made so close together, and oh, yeah. yet this is yeah. just an exquisite work uh, that I'm I'm impressed with what everyone is bringing to this this uh, this project.
0: Derek, I know you do music. Uh, what are some of the other uh, kind of production features or values that stood out to you here?
1: Um well, I mean, uh the the music was touched on a little bit and it's it's interesting the um uh, the range of music. You get mm-hmm. uh you get a lot of um <clears throat> like early American R and B and and probably I mean I kinda call this the song kind of the heart of of Petra von Kahn and that's uh that's the Walkers, I think it was the Walkers, uh smoke in your eyes.
0: Well, that's the platters, and actually. Yeah.
1: Pla- the pla- thank you. Yeah, the the that's platters, right. 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 Walkers does show up later. Right, the right. They do. But, yeah, yep. But, yeah. Yep.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I stand correct. So, anyway, so the platters smoke in your eyes. And I think that this kind of goes back to what I was thinking, saying earlier about Petra being at heart or romantic, but also mm-hmm. kind of a dysfunctional romantic uh, as well. Because it's, it's a, it's a, she, she turns it into a slow dance with Marlene and later she, berates her to, you know, you got to finish that drawing before noon. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, didn't that. you get the mail already? <laughs> I'm mm-hmm, like, ah. mm-hmm.
0: I've had my moment. Now it's time for you to get back to work, you know, just very dismissive. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And actually, actually I wanted to, to comment on on those, uh, like like the moment where the, the camera zooms in on Marlene. And that actually, that's, of course, the difference between a theatrical production and a cinematic production is because... Because of the camera, it actually becomes another actor, and mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it's it's interesting when filmmakers kind of realize that as well. I'm thinking of like Paul and Pressburger with the red shoes, and you know the camera becomes another dancer. So mm-hmm. here, the camera becomes actually becomes like a second witness in in a way, in addition to Marlene. But I do find it interesting that there's a couple times where Marlene gets a close up, and I kind of think, and I'm, I think that that's the moment where either Marlene is either really in love with her or really disgusted by her. The, la- the former being that this is what, this is like the picture that she kind of wants her to be. But then at the same time, there's this disgust, like, why aren't you actually acting like this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then actually, and speaking of formalism, the one time that the camera is actually outside of that room is when um is when sedona arrives and 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 she and petra are talking a bit inside the room and you're looking out the window looking into the room and it's marlene standing there and she has that very statuesque um mournful pose
0: yeah the hand and, up on the window her head bowed down yeah, yeah is, and
1: she's looking, and she's yeah. looking through the window and the window has blinds on it yeah, as well yeah. So, yeah. so that's the one well, time the camera is actually outside of that room but every everything else is all within that tiny little space
0: yeah, I love the the way they use the Venetian blinds and the lighting. Karen's first entrance, she has those lines across her. It's very noirish, yes. kind of danger lurks here. And there's other moments where those Venetian blinds are very strategically used, but. But, you know, it's also a natural part of the room and the environment, but uh, they just captured that. Uh, the mannequins, I think, are another kind of uh, yes. fascinating aspect. Mm-hmm. These of mannequins and dolls. Uh, and even going back to the mirrors, the fact that this is an, uh, indeed a story set in the world of fashion, which is about surfaces and appearances, and also the uh, sort of the, the temporality of it, that, that the fashion may look great now, but it'll be old and passé, not Distant future, you know, and and so it is that the the instability and the the transitoriness of of not just uh, looks and and styles, but but relationships and the uh, I think there's a line that everyone's everyone is re- replaceable here, which is in some ways, kind of a, a cynical and kind of a resigned take on it, that we're all just sort of interchangeable parts. What about true love? What about commitment? What about fidelity? Uh, and I think, you know, th- those values that uh, some people uh, choose and, and do their best to try to live by are definitely being called into question. Um and, and there's a pretty vigorous debate going on within the, the course of this film about what is the nature of love and what is the nature of commitment. Um, obviously, it hurts when commitments are broken and when uh, we become disgusted and disappointed with the person that we love based on what we see them doing to us, to themselves, uh, and sometimes their callousness, their indifference and their cruelty in response to us the lover when we're at our most vulnerable and so this is these are the just the most fascinating things that make this film which is a fairly recent discovery for me i've been kind of making my way chronologically through fassbender through this podcast but this film is uh, incredibly rewatchable because of all of these elements just kind of executed with such uh what such such precision and 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 such a, a deep understanding of of the the power to suggest without having to always put it in so
2: many words well i you know I, I i think something that's really interesting to me is you know the the relationship that petra describes between she and her second husband almost mirrors what happens between she and karen exactly. later yeah. on the the contempt that grows between the two of them also grows between Karn and petra it's just different it's yeah. it's it's a little it's a little different. It's now Karen that has this contempt for Petra, whereas Petra had the contempt for Frank at that point. Mm-hmm. And and you see in that as as uh, as Petra is, um, is trying to in that scene in that masterful scene between the two of them, trying to to find out from Karen what she was doing the night before you see how Karin is just disgusted with this, this person who has made a relationship with her, a condition of food, of clothing, of shelter, of assistance. You see, you see how the conditionality of, um, of 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 assistance becomes this kind of uh, uh, this place where the the seeds of a uh, of disgust begin to grow between the two of them, and uh, I find yeah. that really fascinating.
0: Well, Petra is positioning herself to be. In control, she's the dominant in, one in the relationship. So she sees it, Karen, this young woman, this waif, this ingenue who needs to be sort of shepherded and guided through the cutthroat world of high German fashion, right? Uh, but but Karen does not see herself as that kind of dependent. I mean, she might be financially; she certainly does not have the money. At the moment, or the desire to at least spend whatever she makes, she she cannot get herself into such a a comfortable surroundings, but she's not going to fall into the trap that uh, she might see that Marlena has fallen into. You know, Marlena, perhaps a a former lover of some sort with uh, with Petra, but now she is completely docile, servile, and and humiliated. Karin certainly does not want to end up in, in that type of position, but. But Petra, for all of her um, attempts to establish her her dominance and her authority, uh, turns out to be pretty needy and pretty pathetic. When uh, after all I've done for you doesn't seem to get the result that she was looking for, so uh, you know I think it's probably a good point to you know recognize that Fossbinder himself uh, and and his. Uh, sort of expert biographers consider this his most autobiographical film Uh, with the with the genders being inverted a little bit here this mirrors very much uh, a relationship and obsession he had with Gunther Kaufman who was the kind of biracial but pretty much identifies as the black man and many of those early Fassbender films Uh, he had that same kind of Svengali uh, you know Uh, view of of his relationship with Gunther Kaufman, who was married, I believe he might have even had children at that time. And Kaufman was along for the ride to a certain extent, but then he kind of wanted to say, this is where the line is drawn. And he kind of went his own way. And Fassbender, who I would have to assume is a pretty controlling and pretty powerful personality, probably agonized quite a bit over being thwarted there. But with his artistic brilliance, he was able to take all that anguish and uh, capture it in a script and in a production and a film uh, that the rest of us can kind of observe and learn from. So it's uh, a pretty astonishing piece of work. And and, uh, much like uh, Ingmar Bergman, you know, you you take some of the wreckage of your own personal life and turn it into uh, everlasting art. Brian, let me go ahead and get some of your thoughts on some of the, the, the conversations we've been having and maybe some other points of the film that you'd like to bring to the forefront.
3: Yeah. Well I think you've obviously done a great job so far with the main actors. So I thought maybe Ian Herman is interesting yeah. and there's a sure. kind of interesting biographical uh, kind of link. Um I might have got this not totally right, but it seemed to me in one of the interviews she was saying that she played the same role in the original theatre production. Mm-hmm. And as I remember it, she seemed to say that. Well, she seemed to resent the role that she, the silent role that she was given in the theater. But actually, you you could make a case for her being the real star of this film in some oh, ways.
0: I yeah? think it's pretty brilliant. Yeah. I mean, she really deserves yeah. enormous recognition because, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. she she is the 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 she is the stand-in for the audience. I think in many mm-hmm. cases, mm-hmm.
3: yeah, mm-hmm. right. So I mean. Obviously, without going on too much about the framing, I mean, I think um, the way she is framed more than anybody else is really interesting because she's nearly, if I can bring in an art reference, I don't know how conscious it was, but um, in Dutch art, there's something called a door cake, which means looking through a door or an opening. And she's often framed as if she's in a painting, which is, no, it's a trope in Italian and Dutch painting. But there's a special emphasis uh, with her, often there's a dark background, and uh, another couple of things. one was to do with uh, obviously her expressions are um, very, very subtle, and you have to look hard. but you do see often I think at uh, points where where Petra is um, condemning a character, her lover or something, you'll see a slight smirk. Or something like that on her face oh, yeah. is very, very subtle, yeah. And um, nobody's mentioned the typing <laughs> because, <laughs> well, I, <sure. laughs> I mean, yeah. that is that must be the absolute epitome of passive-aggressive commenting yep. in a film, <laughs> because first, it's a kind of alienation effect, and secondly, it, it's. Sometimes it seems to be indiscriminate and other times it seems almost to be her typing out her aggression aggressive thoughts over the dialogue. And the two are maintained perfectly uh, throughout the film and in a strange way it it's what's really weird is it doesn't irritate it doesn't it didn't irritate me. I was thinking that was like they were like lines of dialogue to me when I was when that, when the typing was going on.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah. almost drowns yeah. out some of the speech, but it, it's very oh, present yeah. and very,
3: mm. yeah. Mm. So yeah, uh, Brian, I, mean, I, I, I would mm, like to ask sure.
0: your your thoughts on mm. the painting. Mm. Was it Midas and yeah. Bacchus, the big uh, mural yeah. that's back on the wall there? Uh, do you know much yeah. about that particular work? I mean, it's, I, it's quite uh, <laughs> fascinating yeah. how that background yeah. is used. Uh,
3: I, I mean, I didn't do much research on it. I mean, it's Poussin, you know, from seventeenth seventeenth century. Um, I, I, you know, there was one critic who made a thing about the male member hovering over their heads at certain. It's points. hard to miss. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But I, I think there was one point where uh, where the hand kind of touches Karin's mm-hmm. head, or it seems to be pointed at her head. Um, to me, uh, what I I kept noticing. I I mean I don't know again how intentional it was the vertical lines which reminded me of film there are these there are these lines which join the pictures on the back rear. yeah and again I I, I kept thinking I mean there's the idea of Midas who turned everything to gold and I think it went from, from in the way in the end so I guess that could be reflected in Petra's ambitions for Karin it that it she wants her to be gold and it and it. By the end, it's uh, not that at all. Um, yeah. Well, and so and I, I,
0: Cleopatra dress certainly has those touches of gold, the gold collar mm. that almost seems to be oh, cutting into her oh, and, neck there. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah. And there's definitely a climp element uh, mm-hmm. to uh, to especially um, the way Patra dresses at one stage. And I mean, and as a general comment, I mean, it's obviously kind of timeless, but you get the feeling it could have been set in uh of the century, 1910s, 1920s, in a way, but it's obviously not time specific.
1: Mm-hmm. But I
3: love that aspect of it. Hmm. Mm.
0: Excellent. Well, we are coming close to uh, the end of our time. But I just want to give everybody one more shot at, at final observations or thoughts. I think we're all pretty much in agreement. This is a, a brilliant work, and uh, I think we've touched on some of the main points, but there might be a few other little uh, nuggets that people want to call out there. So, Derek, you got anything for us? Well,
1: I guess I, I guess I can hint at just a little bit of the coda. So, yeah. so towards the so towards the end, um, Petra has, I think, maybe the one time where she has some genuine self awareness of what she has done through this whole thing, and tries to make amends and does this by reaching out to Marlene and, and telling her that, you know, I want you to love me, not you know, not as a survey, but as, as an equal and is, is basically like offering her, you know, like a, a, what she thinks is a, is a, is a true relationship,
0: almost like an emancipation of, or something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah.
1: It, well, Marlene does take this as an emancipation. So, so the last shot is <clears throat> Marlene walking back and forth across the frame. She has a suitcase and she starts packing the suitcase with uh, various things that were various uh, affects that were important to her, one of them includes a gun. Right, and she packs it all in. She and she actually takes the doll and she puts on her coat and she actually walks out and leaves. And what's interesting is, it, and I, I'll be honest, I'm kind of, I, I've thought about this in a, in a couple of different ways. Like I, I really, th- I re- there's a part of me that really hoped that Petra was in the beginnings of a kind of repentance that maybe the, because she eventually realized what she had done and that this is not the way to do it, that maybe she wants to turn around and do something differently. But, um, Marlene doesn't give her that. doesn't make it easy for her. And,
0: you can't so just I, brush I kinda, away the past just like that. Pretty, right? pretty much, just like yeah. You
1: know, no, I'm, I'm not going to fall for this. Or, or I'm going to take you at your word that you want me to be myself. Then, fine. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna leave. And yeah. proving once more that actions do speak louder than words.
0: Mm-hmm. So. And of course, all over another platter song, "The Great Pretender," which was actually, I don't know if anybody else caught this. This that that version of the Great Pretender is not the one that I think is most commonly played. It's a It's a different version. In fact, when I first heard it, I thought, is that maybe a different group than the Platters that was covering that song? But I actually did some research and found that that is a re-recorded version that the Platters did in 1964 for the Platters' 10th anniversary album is what the name of that record mm. is. So it is the Platters, but it's maybe not the one that's played most frequently on oldies radio these days, if you notice the difference there. <laughs> <laughs> Little trivia there for you, uh, just a uh, little fruits of my own uh, investigation there. Josh, anything you want to kind of throw out there as a, a final word on The Bitter Tears?
2: Yeah, you know, I I think uh, something that, that strikes me is... Uh, when she is given this gift at her birthday in the final act, she's given a doll that mm-hmm. looks oh. uh, <laughs> awful, an I'm awful kidding, lot uh, like uh, Karen. And mm-hmm. um, I do think that that something that that she says towards the end in the final act is this. Um, and and again, I think it comes closest to her being really truly honest. Um, she says, "I don't know that I ever really loved Karen." I think mm-hmm. I just wanted to possess her. yeah. And I do think yeah. that the doll it becomes a symbol of that, that idea of that possession. And, um, and I do think it's, it's also really, really fitting that that's what Marlene takes out with her as well. She yeah. takes out this idea of, of possessing others um, because something else that happens in that, that finale is that she, when she says, you know, I, I want us to be equals, uh, Marlene kisses her hand, and she says, "Well, no, not like that. Mm. I don't want it to be like that." Um, Ugh, and yeah. and so it's this <laughs> this this little again one last little bit there, and that's when Marlene says, "Okay, that's it. I'm I'm done. I'm not I'm not going to be. I'm not going to do this. Do it this way. You're not going to give me what I want out of this relationship, and and you can't actually be." I'm not going to, I'm not going to stick around anymore. <laughs> yeah.
1: But to, pay, but to Petra's credit, she, mm-hmm. she doesn't get in the way. She does not interfere nope. at all.
2: She sits so. there and, and does that. And, and I do think there is a, uh, I've been, when we do a, a podcast on Fassbender, I, uh, I have a book that I go to called understanding Rainer Werner Fossbender film as private and public art. And there's a really great, bit there about this idea of, uh, this film being autobiographical and, uh, the, the author, uh, uh, Wallace Stedman Watson, uh, quotes Ronald Hyman or Ronald Heyman, who says, um, that Petra could be interpreted as an imaginative stand in for the director trying to buy love by helping people dangle their good looks in front of the public. Mm. And, mm-hmm. uh, I just, I liked that, that read on, uh, on the film that, um, again, he's pretty, he's pretty honest in these films about his own failings and, uh, the ways that he also manipulates others. Um, I think it's, uh, um,
0: powerfully. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Well, and I think that's part of what makes these Fassbender films so fascinating is that they do grow out of this this troupe, you know, of, of, his regular actors, his story, his personality is just so sort of magnetic and charismatic and compelling in its own way that these, sto- these films are sort of part of a larger story of Fassbender and his, uh, just his unique impact on the people that he worked with most closely. It was not always a pleasant or a, um, you know, lighthearted, uh, affair to be to be involved in his world but uh, but there's so much creative juice flowing and obviously the actors who worked with him recognized that he you know he created fantastic opportunities for them to portray memorable characters uh they were always beautiful films uh, aesthetically uh, even when uh, his budgets were very low and and the and the environments were very minimalistic, uh, he still just had an uncanny knack for, you know, just creating powerful visual uh, and performative art. So, yeah, but but it, it came with a price because he was often a very caustic personality and uh, he had certain designs on people, you know, Erm Herman among them, uh, who was put in these kind of miserable roles and, and perhaps even had to... Uh, absorb some some blows to her public reputation because people sort of started thinking that she was the characters that she portrayed uh all in all very fascinating so brian i'm going to go ahead and give you the last word on the film and then if you want to maybe transition from there and just tell people where to maybe find out more about your work and then what you do so go ahead and take it from
3: Uh, oh yeah thank you actually uh i want to Kind of end on a, a couple of quotes. One is a uh, for me, it was the most my favorite scene in the film, and I'm going to show off my German here because okay. um, <laughs> I just loved it so much. There's a scene roughly in the middle where Karin is kind of uh, trying to be sympathetic towards Petra, and she and and uh, Petra corrects her her grammar. So <laughs> mm. so Karin says. Verbroken ohne zu gebraucht. Whoever uses the verb need without to, bräuchen überhaupt nicht zu gebrauchen. So it means you. If you're not gonna say it correctly, you don't. You, you can you you you're not the one to speak of need. And I know there's probably a deeper level to it, but I found it delivery so funny because it was both serious and and very funny. And she her react uh, reaction is just oh. Oh to you know something—something like—are you going to point out that kind of thing to me? <laughs> and so I just—I found that one of the rare moments of humour, and the other one. I was, was going to um, say grammar Nazi, yeah. but I thought, well, maybe grammar <laughs> yeah. Nazi isn't. Little... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So the other one was uh, a critic I really like, David Thompson, who wrote the uh, biographical dictionary of the cinema. You know, he says outrageous things in most of his reviews, but he has a good <laughs> <Yes>. line. <laughs> he has a good line. It was not possible to keep up with Fussbinder and there was much in the man that was determined to be unliked. But the rapidity and the cheapness were vital. Um, uh, you know, it. it I was just thinking that if David Thompson can't keep up with Fussbinder, no, I don't think anybody <laughs> can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. Excellent observations. Well, well so Brian, uh, you know, you've mentioned a little bit about yeah. some of the work you yeah. do, the writing. Yeah. So uh, what kind of resources, yeah. links, and we'll have links in the show notes, but just tell listeners a little bit yeah. more about uh, how they might uh, encounter some of your work and just get
3: to know. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. I mean, basically I'm on Facebook quite a bit and it's, you know, it's dot nine oh eight because there are a few Brian Howells around. So if you yeah. add it to the dot, sorry, brian.howell.908. Um, i'm on twitter not very much uh as brian howell um 61 yeah um in terms i mean basically i don't really write academically much about film i mean the odd article but um uh i've got a short story collection coming out and the thing about my fiction is that it's a lot of people say it's kind of driven a bit by art and films Mm -hmm. so there might be that aspect that appeals to people it's not about filmmaking per se, but you tend to get painters and photographers and things like that in it. So I only just wanted to mention a short story collection I'm really happy to have coming out in the UK uh, called The Man Who Loved Kuras, K-U-R-A-S, and it's it's going to be published by SORT Publishing uh, in the UK in October, and it should be, you know, uh, if the website is SORT Publishing, you just look for modern short stories.
0: Well, like I say, we'll have those links in the show notes. And I definitely want to recommend Brian as a great Facebook follow. You you have a mm-hmm. very nice eye for uh, paintings and visuals. Uh, so it's a nice it's a nice uh, edifying and aesthetically pleasing addition to your social media feed. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, you thank know, you. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very, very good stuff. Uh, so Derek, how about uh, fill us in on what you've been up to and whatever other kind of I don't know, self-promotions or updates you (laughs) want to provide, yeah.
1: Well, uh, djproject.cc has everything related to me. Um, I still make music as Kiryoshi. In fact, um, I put out an EP this past February, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to release another one towards the end. It's going to be available towards the end of June. Excellent. uh, So...
0: Okay, well, I'll look that up and give it a listen. And, and Josh, I, I know you know, definitely been you know concerned and, and talked about some of your health issues. It's great to talk to you tonight. You look like you're in good form and, and sound great. Uh, the podcasting pace has slowed up a little bit, but just kind of catch us up on what you've been up to and where things are at with you.
2: Yeah, I uh, I am slowly working on the the Criterion Channel surfing podcast as I am able. Um, my health stuff is still slow, uh, it's slow recovery. Uh, yeah. it, uh, much slower than I would like it to be. Sure. Uh, but that is, uh, more, <laughs> more what I'm, I'm learning to have patience with it as, yes, uh, as that, that happens. Uh, I'm on sabbatical right now. So I started my sabbatical, uh, June 1st and, uh, I'm on sabbatical through the end of August. So, uh, I have some time to, Uh, explore what hybrid community and hybrid interactions look like and how to do those well. I'll be exploring uh, kind of filmmaking and film uh, taking some online film classes and kind of looking at what that looks like uh, and uh, kind of improving uh, film production and video production at my work and then uh, taking some time for myself to continue resting and recovering. Uh, We've, my doctors have Kind of come down on the fact that it looks like uh, I think David. You know, I I podcasted with you. Pretty extensively at the beginning oh, yeah. of the pandemic, sure. and uh, there was thought that I might have caught COVID early, and we think that I probably caught a mild case of it, and that the clotting in my leg and lungs is potentially uh, oh. a, a yeah. side effect of that, and so it. Well, some yeah, of the I- some of the extra things that I'm uh experiencing line up with that as well, so.
0: Well, you know, There's it, it seems like oh, such a long time ago, but I remember, you know, Seattle was kind of one of those first uh, breakout yeah. spots uh, of COVID and the pandemic back when we thought maybe we could contain it to certain yep. parts of the country or whatever. Yeah. But, uh, well, Josh, definitely, though, it's, it's been great to reconnect with you yeah. tonight. I mean, certainly we've we crossed paths on social media, but really enjoyed the conversation. And really, Brian... Thank you for your contributions to the Thank show. You. Really yeah, looking forward, great. looking forward to getting you back on again. And Derek's always a pleasure having you on board as well. So, yeah, uh, we've had a good conversation. And if uh, the stars align, I'm going to go ahead and get with William Remmers. And so uh, we'll have a little musical interlude here before we wrap it up. Uh, but then it'll be me and Will coming up after the break. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, hanging in there with us, listeners. I am here with William Remmers and a uh, what's been somewhat delayed uh, appendage to the earlier conversations that you have already listened to about an hour's worth of chat about the bitter tears of Petra von Kant. But I really wanted to get William's input on this. This is a film that I feel like uh, whatever it is he's got to say is going to be interesting and is is definitely worth, (laughs) I'm saying in advance of hearing whatever it is, uh, is definitely worth the uh, extra time that it's taken for us to round out this episode. So William, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you back again.
4: Thanks for having me, David. And I am very uh, flattered and honored by your your interest in having me make it no matter what the uh, time frame.
0: Well, you know, that's that's true. And and also, I feel like, you know, even though we had a really solid hour of, of conversation with, with knowledgeable and insightful guests, I still feel like we've only scratched the surface of this film in some ways. And so, you know, I've got a few more things to say about it, even though I have not re- rewatched it. Uh, from that initial go-around. But I went through it like three times, including the commentary tracks, was just watching the Jane Shattuck uh, special feature prior to uh, getting on line here with William. So, um, I'm going to let you kind of, you know, guide the ship, William. Uh, tell me just a little bit, what's your opening take on Fossbinder and this particular film in his oeuvre?
4: I v- slowly came to love him because of the Criterion Collection, obviously, yeah. and Um, Thankfully, uh, his Eclipse set acted as me the perfect entryway. And Mm -hmm. as you've been going through in in, in a similar order to go through those films, and um, though I had jumped a little bit later to Ali at one point, um, then I went on and watched um, Merchant and I watched Eight uh, eight Hours Don't Make a Day, which Mm -hmm. uh, was really for me, I think the tipping point Where I mean, those two films in particular, um, because I th- and I think actually when I go back to that eclipse set I'll love those films even more. Uh, mm. I think I was most struck by Katzelmacher, but um, did get a lot out of all of them. But like when I really had my come to Reiner moment was definitely <laughs> eight hours. Eight hours don't make a day, which obviously has a certain approachability to it compared mm. to other works he's done, but is is no less fascinating and um, thought provoking. Uh, well,
0: yeah. So so bitter tears is actually one that I would say is probably. Well, for the broad audiences, a little bit less accessible. There are some audiences that this film is like absolutely made for. They embrace it, they love it from, you know, the opening shots. Others will find it, you know, stilted and arch, and you know, and and that whole Brechtian alienation distancing effect that we did touch on in our earlier conversation. Uh, how about Bitter Tears? What's what's your you know you've you've already kind of made, stated a few of your favorites. So where does this one kind of rank in the hierarchy there?
4: So this is the, uh, the last one of his movies that I watched um, in, in my recent journeys through it because I've really been trying to watch his movies more or less chronologically, mm-hmm, having to mm-hmm. skip some based on availability. Thankfully, um, some of those gaps are being filled. I have bought in completely with the new reissues and new uh, Arrow box sets. So yeah. these three Arrow sets that have come out have a pretty comprehensive view and I'm currently using that in supplementing it with the Criterion Channel. Not to say I'm not going to maybe get those discs too at some point, right. uh, but it's nice to feel like there's a low cost way for me to dip into two different editions materials. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but Bitter Tears was like, uh, yeah, it was really something else for me when I saw it. And and it's funny you mentioned the, the approachability because giving a, a review, I um, I felt like, oh, this is the kind of movie. I could show somebody who doesn't understand the ways in which film could be art, and they would they would sort of see it. But I definitely see your meaning, and I obviously um, would be biased to assume that someone would just would just click for them. But there are certain certain um, gestures in the filmmaking that I feel like show. Um, I mean, there's the the thing about alienation is so interesting because in, in a way, I mean, I think that effect eventually ping-pongs me back to you know, obviously thinking about the thing as the thing that it is and enjoying it for its context. So I have a lot to say about that. And, and my, my main thesis I kind of want to get into is how to view a film in a very general way mm. and something that's a little more of a general philosophical idea, but how this film is a particularly interesting lens that I hope was opened up to um, in the past days. But if I can give you my first impression... Um, when I watched it, it was last year, and I have my Letterboxd review open, which is just one sentence, and of course, it's five stars and a heart, and <laughs> yeah. it says, uh, not going to read anything about it, just going to lie in it, mm. and I just knew that, I finished watching the film, and I'm like, I'm not going to watch any supplements, I'm not going to read anyone else's reviews, I want to just sit in this, and yeah. so when your um, list showed this film was coming up, I was like, well that's gotta be my opportunity to after a year, perfect timing, I'll like, I'll start to kind of more join the forum in terms of the analysis of this particular film and and the appreciation of it and understanding.
0: Yeah, well, so so what we have here is a very theatrical piece. And I think one of the, the comments I, I mentioned, the Jane Shattuck special feature, it's about a 20-some minute analysis of the film, her reflections on it. She she mentioned, she was talking about the Marlena character, and is and, and she made the statement, is this a real person? Is, is this something that an actual person would do? And, and I think that, that could kind of be extended because these characters are, you know they're not they're not symbols this isn't just some kind of metaphorical analogy they're they're very human characters but but the way everything is framed and 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 po- the posing and and all of that doesn't feel necessarily like a slice of life but it 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 kind of addresses so many fundamental issues in how we uh, approach relationships and the various roles that that individuals can play as part of a couple uh, whether they are the pursuer the pursued you know the wooed the one the 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 trapped who's struggling to get out and assert their autonomy their individuality uh, the manipulator and the player you know i mean all of those kind of aspects of of relationships come through and then of course this is a you know a yeah an LGBT film uh where you know you do have a a woman who had been married to to a couple of men but now she has a very strong interest in this beautiful young woman and so that whole aspect, I mean, we really didn't even touch on that, but, you know, this being Pride Month and all of that, I guess this is a, and and this was a pretty important entry in the canon of, of queer cinema when it was coming into the kind of the cultural mainstream in the early 70s. So lots of, lots of different dimensions to, to talk about here and a lot of different connection points for some. And like I say, for others, you know, if they're looking for a, more of a, a standard kind of ro- relationship or romance story this may not be it but but it creates this really strong kind of emotional milieu that i that i agree william is is kind of like kind of staggering once you're sort of get engrossed in it and you see the the the, the angst and the drama and the poignancy of of these two women in relationship and really not just these two that you know the uh, the, the two main characters, but, but all of them, I mean, even the mother, the daughter, the the sister, everybody's got stakes in this conflict and, and Petra von Kant's kind of breakdown and deterioration and they've all got to kind of sift their way through the wreckage, uh, including Petra herself. And uh, you know, there's no comfortable or convenient resolution at the end of it. We're, we're left kind of feeling all the pain and all the angst of, of uh, Marlena's exit, you know, and, 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 you know, just, just the whole situation there is, is pretty, pretty, uh, heart stirring.
4: I, I, the exit is, is interesting to me because, um, I don't want to be glib, but I I always feel like, um, thinking about that ending, it almost feels like a punchline. Like it almost feels it's so, it's so like a abrupt and, and clear. Mm-hmm. And and for, for Marlena, who I think watching it on a Blu-ray, I was able to really appreciate how her makeup is so mannequin-like yeah. and reflective of, of the environment she's in. That I think uh, using the word autonomy and thinking of automatons is a very notable way to think about her as, you know, she doesn't look far off from one of the automatons in Tales of Hoffman and that she's mm-hmm. got to find her way to to assert identity. and And ultimately, I mean, there's... So, when it comes to context, um, and and I think that that's been very important for me and how I go about choosing to view films and reading them, which is, I think my letterbox review points at this is I don't really love to go into things with that much context the first time I see it if I can avoid it because I can always see it again with context. And once I know too much, I, I know too much. So, I tend to be someone that's like, please don't spoil anything. Like I even don't really want to know who's in it or what, I don't want to see any screenshots of it. Like I want (laughs) to, if if the, if the filmmaker made this as a one piece of art, I want to be able to have that experience. So this is a film that I probably had only seen a couple of frames of here or there. I didn't know anything about going in. And um, when you think of it that way, if, if you assume that the filmmaker, I mean, nowadays you couldn't assume this, but that maybe you're just walking into an art house cinema in the early 70s and you just see the title of the film, looks an interesting title, you know this, oh, this is that hot director people are saying mm-hmm. is, like, is from Germany and he's got a name. You go see it. The first thing that it announces to you um, in a way that is a kind of a direct address for context are two very obvious uh, credits that tribute Marlena slash Hermann. That in that opening credits, you're given a very clear direction on where you should be looking. And I find that is much more useful than what I actually feel like was one of my contexts going in, which was, I remember when Criterion announced it, it maybe one of the three reasons videos or something, mm. but I remember like a clip, the spinning sea logo, hearing Smoke Gets In Your Eyes and the platters are my favorite group of that era. Uh, mm. So of course this film is very dear to me just for that reason alone. Yeah, yeah. And, and Smoke Gets In Your Eyes is my karaoke song. so um, oh, yeah. So I love hearing it. I'm just every note of that song I know like back of this, like my soul. And I did not catch that the great pretender wasn't the, uh, wasn't the original one the first time, but I did, I do understand what would be now that it's a recording. Uh, Cause yeah. you eventually, you've heard it enough times, you know, like that doesn't seem like it's the. Yeah. yeah the back,
0: the background vocals are different, you know, yes. in the yeah, original, yeah. the front is the, the, the lead is right up front there and it carries the whole tune. This was a more of a felt more like a vocal group.
4: Kind yeah, of yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, right. um, so I'm, i am I've, obsessed with that little detail. Um, <laughs> but so, uh, yeah. uh, the, the the idea that, like, the, the context I may have had going in is, like, oh, this is a, um, a a lesbian melodrama with these these two actresses and you see them and there's carpets and there's flowy things and, no, 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 at the very beginning of the film, there's a couple of cats eating and Aram Herm Hermann is who this is about. Like, <laughs> don't ignore, ignore the title. Like, this is the person to whom I dedicate this project and to whom is like making an extraordinary appearance by even condescending to be in my film, like that, <laughs> that yeah. for Fassbender to be someone people might think be somewhat difficult in some ways and, and iconoclastic and, um, and even again, confrontational as, as it's been said, like he's bowing down at Aram Haramon's shrine. And I mean, I think he does that in Merchant as well, like just in the way he frames and, Structures his characters. He's also very willing to make her completely uh, miserable and, and evil and, well, and that's, yeah. intense too. But
0: it is the double-edged I, cut, isn't? Because he he is. I, I think he's aware that he's making her into this really memorable character. Not that he himself is entirely responsible. I mean, erm does incredible work on her own. But you know, she's not what you would. I mean, like hana Shagula is a you know classic, beautiful, glamorous movie star face body the whole works. Erm Herman does not give you the impression that she's going to make the impressions that she does or that that she's going to reach the artistic heights. You know, just uh, maybe it's just my own sort of conventional way of sizing up actors by their looks or their presentation. Uh, but he but he does <laughs> uh, exert sort of a, a cost on her and 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 Erm, I think, had to live a fairly you know go through a fairly difficult passage of lived experience to be part of all of this and and that is kind of the interesting thing as well as far as uh was it margaret karstensen um who did not feel like she was part of the troupe. You know, she kind of came in later on, and in, in some of those tensions, I think spill over into the performances as well. Like who's part of, you know, Rainer Werner Fassbinder's inner circle? Who who is he tight with versus who is he just kind of working with as professionals? As as you know, really, literally in this case, models to you know, put themselves in front of the camera and do the things that he can capture visually to convey the message that he wants to relate to his audience and and pull us in. So it is. There's just all these different levels of, of tension and uh sometimes rivalry or one-upsmanship of, of trying to say who's who's the real star of this film? Is it Hannah Shigula, you know, the the classic beauty? Is it Margot who's the title character? Is it Erm, who's you know, by all surf- surface appearances, is kind of a side character, doesn't get to utter a single word, has to do all of her acting with her face and her positioning, <laughs> her typing, of course. It, it is. It's. It's pretty
4: remarkable. The uh, interesting thing there is that, in terms of who is the star, I think that, or like, and how those tensions could have even been reflected from the set. Um, there are even shots where, you know, a character like Petra can't let on that michael bauhaus is now slowly traveling and zooming in on someone else yep i mean there's there's an astounding shot in the first sequence where it goes so 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 slowly and slowly over one conversation with zidane and petra before it finally zooms into marlena then she goes out of focus we pull back and then it's a intense close-up of petra on one huge fluid movement Mm -hmm. but You'd have to block that as a play, and this is this is a play. I mean, it, yeah. it is. It's it's got the roots, and it's been made into an opera in in recent years too, and almost with the exact text, like word for word, just now set to music. Because, H- have
0: you seen that performed, Will? I, I have not, yeah. but I but but, yeah. but
4: you can. It is. Um, there are clips of it online. I think maybe in the full performance that I dipped into once, and it's just fascinating just to hear the script you know mm-hmm. sung. Yeah, and it takes you know almost about the same amount of time too, maybe a little longer actually to sing it all, but. Um, yeah. But I actually had that thought watching it the first time. I'm like, oh, this is an opera. This is absolutely (laughs) what an opera is. And uh, I thought it was telling that at the start of the film, you know, it's saying music, Giuseppe Verdi, the platters. I'm like, oh, well, I'm at home because I know (laughs) know my opera and I know my platters. So I feel good. I I actually have a a note about the opera use just because, you know, that's my color commentary. And um, I'm going to just read from... um, I have a list on Letterboxd, which is uh, my sort of pride and joy, which is the opera and film list. Where anytime opera is used in a diegetic way, uh, I want to, you know, make that add to the list, whether it's heard or discussed. And here, I think it's almost a cuspy thing. Uh, and here's what I here's my analysis from the first time I saw it. Uh, La Traviata is the opera used, and here's the description of its use. Alfredo's arioso, which is titled Undi Felice, is heard in its entirety. Given the credit for Giuseppe Verdi among two other popular music groups in the opening titles, and since the latter group's musical excerpts are shown coming from a record player, the viewer might intuit that this excerpt is also coming from a record player, although no one is on hand to start this music. So perhaps it's not diegetic, but it definitely sounds, quote-unquote, in the room. And I'd be hard-pressed to believe anyone who has seen the film would disagree that it's clearly, quote-unquote, felt, even if subconsciously, by the frame and the forms inside it. And I think that when you um, start a film, the way he starts it again with context, like the credits of a film are there for a reason, particularly with a filmmaker like this. Mm. And if he's gonna frame the credits in this way and put it over cats and make you just watch a pretty slow credits with huge, big, big type, um, I wanna read every word of it. And <laughs> if he's announcing like, you're gonna have the platters and Giuseppe Verdi, and this is gonna be what you know the environment of the music is, um, like where does that verity come from? And I certainly think that like it doesn't need to be a logical reason. It could be like Fasbender says, "That's the music for this moment," and that makes sense. I mean, in in some ways, it's it's just a an arioso about love. It's just an arioso. I mean, in the simplest terms, it's an arioso about meeting someone, being in love, and finding that that day you met them is now going to live on in your heart forever. Um, obviously, that that a plot of Traviata can go farther than that, but um, I don't think that you know. T- it doesn't need to be treated as a hugely deep meta-text. It just can be, okay. like, you know, a, an emotional feeling. But the use of it, I found very curious because of uh, the way in which it just comes out of nowhere and just lives in the scene.
0: Well, you know, I'll have to confess my naivety about you know opera at that level. I mean, I'm at the I'm at the place where it just kind of creates a a mood, a feeling, and I guess that's what I'm hearing from you is that that's really. The, the main purpose of it was to kind of create that sort of operatic, emotional, broader context rather than, you know, quoting perhaps an even more instantly recognizable piece of music to the, you know, uh, I don't the Rite of Valkyries and Apocalypse Now. I mean, everybody knows that music, but how it's applied, you know, completely different uh, context, emotional register, and everything else. But I, that was one of my curiosities was, was that a selected piece of music? particularly because of the content of the lyrics or where it was at in in the original production and how it's placed here or do you think as i as i maybe i'm understanding correctly this is just more of a mood piece uh in a more kind of broader general sense
4: i, I think so i think um from from what i know i think Fossbinder, you know knows his stuff he, mm-hmm. he's he, he's got lots of i mean we, we've talked about Uh, I mean, we, we go back to talking about ball and his relationship with that film. And I mean, he, he's somebody that he, he knows his Brecht. He's going to know his classics in some departments. He's going to probably know which classics he wants to shit on. So (laughs) I I mean, I'm, I'm did, who knows like maybe even using some music is a bit of a piss take on his part of like, like, Oh, I don't think this music is as, as you know, this as the people say it is, or maybe I want to show, want to deflate this music slightly by like putting it against something that maybe it doesn't, to represent as a direct you know quote parallel but yeah. uh I, I think you're right i think that to, um i'm sure i can spend more time with it and and read into it more deeply but um in some ways it's like because it plays out in its entirety i mm-hmm. think that's most interesting thing just like the the, the other 45s too yeah right where you again imagine like well where is this like who played this music it has to be here for a purpose and there's something magical about it and uncanny and that's one way you could describe the characters in in this film too. So, I mean, I think that it's perfectly in keeping with a film, this uncanny to, Mm -hmm. uh, to have musical moments that appear not to fit in with the quote unquote, the rules of the rest of the the film, but it's who says there are rules of a film, even within one film.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the platters—you know—those were genuine needle drops. There, I mean, you know, smoke gets in your eyes. You know, that's got this kind of yearning, voluptuous quality. Of course, that's that's the slow dance that Petra and Marlena do, really almost right at the beginning of the film. That it's both a demonstration of of Petra's control and Marlena's submission to her. Because the dance gets broken off with some, you know, directives and a little bit of chastising, you know, rebuke there, uh, and Marlena just goes along with it. So we're seeing in in the midst of this, you know, really kind of emotional, like they say, this kind of voluptuous song. You know, the the you know the the, the vocal notes, the, even the idea, smoke gets in your eyes, the tears, the the yearning, and and the. You know, and the heartbreak that, that comes with it, and then the Great Pretender, which is very much a, a zinger. It's a it's an expose. Uh, it's it's pointing out the hypocrisy and and the delusions that we willingly inflict upon ourselves as we try to recover from you know the various heartbreaks, disappointments, and betrayals that that life throws our way. And so, you know, there, there's there's a very direct and humorous commentary, uh, and I would presume that that. That transcends even uh, the non-English speakers, you know, uh, because the power of the music comes through. You know, I, I don't know the sensation of hearing the platters without understanding the lyrics, but I, I do feel like, you know, even if if you're watching it, it as a German who doesn't have great English, you, you get the gist of what's being sung about there.
4: Absolutely, uh, I'll. We're getting now to my big uh, reveal of my topic that I want to want to kind of my thoughts with which uh, i'll get to in a second but it's smoke it's in your eyes is an interesting song for me because it does come from an earlier musical which Mm -hmm. is roberta um the music by jerome kern there's an excellent ep by irene dunn which amazingly you can go Mm -hmm. to like spotify and find and it has like a release date of 2020 or 2021 you're like i don't know if irene dunn has recently released an EP. But <laughs>
0: there's a lot of repackaging like she, going on these days, you know.
4: Exactly. <laughs> she, she has a she has a six song EP of Jerome Kern music that I believe it's from like the late 40s okay. that you can now find on Spotify and Irene Dunn sings that and she sings I've told every little star which is from Music in the Air but everybody would assume it's from Mulholland Drive and it's like there's all these there's all these things <laughs> yeah, where you're like no no yeah. these songs go back further. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in a song like Smoke Its in Your Eyes or many of the other like kind of R&B or duop standards that you might hear in the 50s that a lot of those are you know from a like a Broadway musical style which when you listen to Irene Dunn sing them you realize that they are more related backwards to Traviata than they are forwards to the Platters. Mm,
1: mm-hmm. And
4: so there's there's some curiosity there and it's be if you've heard the Platters version as many times as I presume you have and I have when you hear like the original way the way it's meant to be done and the rhythm it has—it's not like you, you go, "Ooh, I don't know if I like this." But then you have to sink in and go, "No, no, this was what was written." Let me. Same thing with "I've Told Every Little Star." If you've heard that '60s kind of pop version, and then to go back and hear it sung straight and hear it sung with the full verse and then the chorus, and not just as like a truncated mm-hmm. pop hit, mm-hmm. you'll realize that there's something that's that's very curious there. And I think Foster taps into like that kind of like pop version of some classic element in a lot of things that he does, in which. I, makes me do find him a bit approachable even when he's confronting you. Um, yeah. I mean, there are certain moments in even his, his earlier violent films that I think are um, like outwardly humorous or, or entertaining. So um, I, I know he's there, and if that's the alienation effect I want, it only brings me closer to the guy and just makes me, you know, get on his side. But, um, let me get to, to my, my, my big spoiler, which is okay. <laughs> you may know that at the beginning of the film, there's this quite revealing shot that, again, if you didn't know who you were looking at, when uh, Petra and Sidon are talking to each other on the bed, there's that extended shot of Marlena with her hand kind of on the glass and
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
4: just completely silent in the foreground while this conversation is heard in the background. And it lasts for, for quite a duration. And I was, I was trying to fall into the image. Here I was again going, I was... Under the spell of this film when I first saw it, and something wasn't happening the second time, and I think it's because I know where the plot is going, and I, in some ways, I don't need to read as much. Mm-hmm. And I finally did something I've been meaning to do for ages, and I thought I would do it with like a French film I've seen many times because French I'm particularly competent with. Mm-hmm. Um, German I'm less so, but I t- turned off the subtitles for the rest of it.
0: Yeah,
4: and yeah. I just decided like I I don't need to. I mean, I see entire opera swimmers without translation. I got no issue. I know where, the, I know what's happening. Right. And I was blown away by how much more of an impact it had. To the point that I, I fairly, I feel like we can scarcely say we've seen the film until we've tried it. Like I don't mm-hmm. want to no. proselytize, but yeah, right. <laughs> right. I was, I was able to. Yeah. I mean, and even when I t- try to ignore the subtitles, they're yeah. still there in the image, and it's hard yeah. to totally. I mean, I've I've considered developing like my own little undertitle system where I can get a subtitle coded track, put a little bar under the television mm-hmm. that then is projected simultaneously, and then <laughs> allow the viewer to not see the titles if they don't want to. Right. But um, I was it allowed me to appreciate the acting more, the blocking, which is impeccable, mm-hmm. House's work. Like I was just able to whereas the first time I was engrossed in kind of the whole thing and the story, and the characters. Here I was engrossed in and just the visceral emotion emotional image that i was seeing which is everybody involved is has something to do with that you know every single person costume makeup Fassbinder, the performers it's one complete theatrical package mm-hmm. that then i was able to just take in visually and what's curious to me is i've 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 got a similar you know high horse which is i don't like to watch silence with any score because I feel like unless there's an official score, at least the first time, unless there's an official score, I don't want anyone else's reading of the film to guide the rhythm of how I view it. And I right. feel like if I can, if the cuts are so, and someone underlines those cuts so, then maybe I'll think of them as a different type of cut than maybe they actually were meant to be. Hmm. And I would mm-hmm. rather risk, I'd rather risk, um, you know, being way off base and thinking a scene is not funny when it's supposed to be. Because <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it might have been speculation that it's supposed to be funny. But one thing that happens is when I watch a silent without sound, I start to kind of talk to myself because all that's I'm taking in input visually. And yeah. then it means like my dialogue in my brain is active. And I never thought this would be the same, but this is exactly what happened when I watched this film without subtitles mm-hmm. is I began to like speak because I wasn't thinking about ingesting text the same way. Sure. I knew what was going on and I knew enough of the German to like not have to think too much about what each scene was about. But I also, you know, I didn't get every single word. I didn't get every single nuance of the backstories that maybe I didn't remember the full details of, but it didn't really matter when the broad strokes of it were more impactful to me. So not to say that one way of watching a film will be superior, but I would encourage anybody who is interested in maybe either my silent technique or this new technique that I want to maybe look into maybe watching a film that way for the first time when I'm brave. Um, that like, these are, these are options if you want to revisit films many times and you feel comfortable with it. I think that... Um, for this film in particular, and the, the, the reason why I felt it was so apropos is, I mean, if if Marlena couldn't talk, it put me on her level, not to know what anybody was saying in a mm. weird way, where I was like, I, I removed language from the equation
3: yeah.
4: and made it a comp- like, and it meant that I was looking at her in shots where previously I was looking right. at subtitles
0: right and 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 yeah the the, the facial expressions the the positioning I've, I've already kind of made some of those same points but that 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 is it i mean it it does inspire me to want to give at least maybe a portions of this film another fresh look you know without the text because there is this integration of of music lighting performance uh voice tone you know just all of those elements that that convey something that isn't dependent on the spoken dialogue, you know, I mean, and I'm sure the dialogue has its place. And if you're a fluent German speaker, you know, there's probably things that you pick up on the, the barbs that are exchanged between Petra and Karen, you know, as they kind of go through their roller coaster of, of the relationship there. But yeah, I think, I think for the, you know, the, the, the deeper impact and the more resonant is going to be, you know, how do we identify and connect with, each of these characters uh, chapters of our own lives, our own experiences and relationships where we, we see ourselves reflected as, as both, uh, you know, the vi- villain and victim <laughs> in turn. And, and I think that that is the, the, the ongoing power of this film, as well as all those beautiful aesthetic touches that you know, Fassbender still pretty early on in his career, but he really has, you know, consistently raised his game from those, Brash, bratty, punky early works that I love as well. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty impressive, uh, you know, progress. Obviously, his his collaboration with talented people makes a big difference. But you know, the director is the one who pulls it all together. Any other thoughts you have? Uh, I mean, I I think we've we've hopefully given a pretty strong endorsement and recommendation. If anybody has not yet seen this movie and listened this far, what are you waiting for? And this might even be a spur for folks to revisit a film that perhaps has been sitting on their shelf for a while, but any other final comments you got before we wrap this up?
4: No, just th- thank you very much for making it happen. I enjoyed yeah. listening to the to the rest of the episode that everybody you know listening now must have heard already, and I'm I'm excited to to have that be put out to everybody. And yeah, please like support support Vossbinder and check out some of these um, the f- new films that have come out in the the third Arrow set if you're region free because those films uh, many of them aren't available on Criterion and yeah, in the can U.S. You- so you. Can-
0: can you say just a little bit more about, I mean, I've been eyeballing them and it's like, well, I already have a lot of these films. And I mean, you know, am I going to go in for films that I already own just to get a few of those other titles? Because I, I think some of them are not even on the Criterion streaming channel either, right? That these are not right. exclusives, but they're not very easily obtained. So tell, tell just a little bit more about the set, because I've been really on the fence about whether or not I want to go. So
4: uh, Petrifon Kant is in the first set. And yeah. what's interesting, about yeah, they're the not first chronological
0: set, either. They're, they're kind they're, of a, a grab bag, aren't they? They're
4: kind of a grab bag. The first two sets are kind of a repackage of ones that had previously gone out of print. And what's good about them for Criterion folks is that it would allow you to get Love is Colder Than Death, *Katzelmacher*, and Beware of a Holy Horror* and Blu-ray. Yeah. So if you want to upgrade from DVD for those films, that's a really great way to go. Uh, that set has those three, as well as Bitter Tears, Merchant, and Tenderness of the Wolves, which Uli Lommel directed. Oh, but, okay. And it ha- already has its own Arrow standalone, which I have. But um, Fassbinder uh, is directly involved in producing that film and uh, is a key key component of its creation. And his entire, you know, Rogues Gallery shows up. So it's, oh, sure. it's right. Yeah. It's, it's it's a Fassbinder film in a way. The second set is Fear eats the soul, Ali. Effie uh, Breast, Fox and His mm. Friends, Chinese Roulette, and The Marriage of Maria Brown. So you have two of those films um, are ones that I believe are on the channel, but not in the disc collection. Right. Um, and otherwise, the other three are. Uh, kind of frustratingly, the BRD trilogy is not fully represented by these Arrow sets. So okay. one would need to get that anyway. And the third set, though, is I think the one that would appeal most to somebody who doesn't really know, um, you know or like, has the criteria, as every criterion, Fassbender might want to go for this. Um, it's got Gods of the Plague and Rio das Mortes, mm-hmm. the, Nikla- the Niklausen Journey and American Soldier, Mother Cooster's Ghost to Heaven and Fear of Fear and Satan's Brew.
0: Yeah. So it, that- it
4: has a lot of stuff that's like either not on the channel or just only on the channel that you would only get in streaming and you might want to have in high def and experience. Plus, all their individual features on all three of these sets that are exclusive to the Arrow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's the other part. Okay. I think I'm just going to have to (laughs) buckle down and and, uh, add that. to the I I
4: recommend it. The third one, uh, (laughs) the third one is, uh, is, is just came out. Mine just shipped from Diabolic DVD. Uh, It'll probably go out of print pretty quickly. So if anybody's Mm. listening, take, take a look now. I think it'll be worth it. The other two, I think have gone out of print, but if knowing what I know from Arrow, all of these will be available individually um, in their sales. So like, if you missed like the one of the two movies that you're like don't have the box set for, wait for the sale and pick up that one disc. I was fortunate. I, the only movie out of any of these I kind of had already Criterion was Ali, so I was right. like, well, I actually don't have any of the Criterion Fassbender, so this was, or I do have the Eclipse, but that's an upgrade. Right. right. Um, so this this was a no brainer for me. Someone like you with the collection, I know of yeah. Criterion, you have maybe you go well. That's a lot of doubling, <laughs> but uh, yeah. for this set, I think that, I mean, there's really. Nothing that's on Blu ray on um, in Criterion on this third box. So yeah, you'd that- be. You'd be- well maybe, I'll, up, right.
0: maybe I'll just I'll start there and see how compelling it is to get those other two to <laughs> round out the set. So, William, just give us a little update on what you've been up to. I'm always kind of fascinated to hear what your projects are. It looks like you're not in England uh, this summer. Are you going to be heading no, I end? will be. I will be. At
4: the end of July, I'll do my usual Gilbert and Sullivan. Okay. And I'll, be con- I'll be conducting gondoliers and performing in the Grand Duke, two uh, lesser-known shows that are really great that will be a lot of fun. And, um, and yeah, you mentioned the Rocky horror thing that I told you about last week. I, um, in the New York city, Rocky horror kind of shadow cast, they've now started doing this kind of live cabaret performance with live music that kind of Mm -hmm. replaces the music in the film so that we have like, I'm synced up to the film and I'm, I'm the MD of that to where I'm playing piano and guitar for the performances and the rehearsals along with the rest of the musicians from 1975. Wow. And like we've edited out the vocals and done things to it so to kind of make so you're it like performing
0: a, over the film, is that um, yeah, yeah,
4: and okay, then and then, right. and then there there are cast members um, who are performing the roles and singing live oh. um, with wow. the film projected behind them oh, so there's sort, sort of like an interactive thing and it's 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 a great gig i mean i'm I'm yeah. really enjoying it and uh, and I know all the music, so I didn't have to'm like a memorized coming in so right. I didn't have to think about it.
0: How many nights is that going on?
4: it's now it's, like, it's an indefinite monthly thing so oh okay it'll be it'll be one or two times a month we've done okay. a few of them already i think it'll be a little slow because it's we have to wait for me to get back from from england i have another one coming up soon but they're all like ones that we did one at the duplex which is a famous uh club in in new york next to stonewall um okay that's that's a very happen in pride spot and uh, another place called caveat down in the east village where those are the two venues that have currently booked us for like monthly engagements for this event which has been selling out each time so they're they're excited about it, and uh, I'm happy to 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 do work doing something that for me is uh, rewarding and you know. And- one of those jobs that it rewards the work I've put in without knowing I was putting it in by just knowing this material yeah
0: you were just ready for it yeah and I found you that's very cool well thanks for the update William it's always a pleasure to hear from you and I know our listeners like tracking uh, what's going on in your world sure makes me wish I lived a little bit closer to New York City I'd love to drop in and see one of your performances so maybe we'll have to think about a vacation out that way one of these days (laughs) okay please please anytime All right. Well, listeners, our next episode is going to be me and Richard Doyle getting back to some genre stuff. I'm going to be covering Dracula AD 1972 kind of a late-in-the-sequence hammer horror film starring Christopher Lee where he takes the iconic Dracula character and puts him into early 70s England. Uh, And and I'll confess right here, I've never seen I don't think, anyways, I don't think I've ever seen a full hammer horror film from start to finish. So (laughs) I've got a little bit of research to do. I'm going to catch up on my Christopher Lee Dracula films. So I have a little bit of uh, knowledge, but of course Richard's got a lot of insight on all of that. He's uh, doing his homework on the whole hammer legacy. So So that is what's coming up next on Criterion Reflection. So uh, thank you for your patience as we put this one together. Thanks again, William. It's been great having you on the show. And listeners, hang in there. I'm going to try to get this next episode out there really soon. And uh, Trevor and I are also going to be talking about the Witt Stillman films in our Inside the Box podcast. So that's a little bit of what i got coming up uh, as I continue to enjoy my summer of 2022. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back at you very soon. Bye-bye.
2: Yes, oh yes, I'm the great, the great pretender, yes, pretending that I'm doing well, yes, my need need. is such, is such, I
3: pretend.
2: a dream